0: And I realized, wow, this doesn't have to be a part of my life for the rest of my life as I just assumed it would be. I assumed this was always a dark companion that would always be with me. Once I went to that meeting and realized, oh, I can recover from this. This doesn't have to be my forever. Made me so feel so relieved and it felt like I could breathe for the first time. And I didn't realize that I'd been holding my breath for over a
1: decade. Welcome back to The Recalibrate Podcast, a series of conversations and ideas that connect us more deeply to others and therefore ourselves. Each episode is designed to help you reflect and reconnect, leaving you feeling inspired to make positive change on your path towards a more purpose-driven life. Before listening, if you could go ahead and rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, that would be super, super helpful. And follow us on Instagram at recalibrate.podcast so that you can stay connected. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Recalibrate podcast. I am so, so excited to have Amanda on the podcast today. I met Amanda a couple of weeks ago in person at one of our friends' live podcast mixers, David Nabinski, the one and only. (laughs) And immediately when I heard Amanda share her story, I asked her to be on the podcast because I just the way that you told it was absolutely beautiful and so moving. So I'm so excited to have you here today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. And I love meeting you. It's always great when you can meet people in person. I feel like I'm so used to Zoom calls these days when you meet people in person. It's just extra special.
1: Yeah, 100%. Fingers crossed, Recalibrate will have an in-person filming soon. Yes. But for, for now, Zoom is the way to go. But I'm so glad that we had that initial meet in person for sure. Let's dive in. For those who haven't gotten to meet you yet, do you want to give a little introduction who you are and kind of... What, like, set the scene for us? Yeah, of course. So, hi, my name is Amanda Beausoleil. I run a mental health
0: nonprofit. And as I go into my journey, you will hear how I got here and the journey it has been, such as life. So, it really starts with mental health and my journey with self injury. And the nonprofit that I founded and am the executive director for is called CIRA, so SIRA. So, S I R A, and it stands for Self Injury Recovery and Awareness. It is a peer support group model and it's helping people create community and gain healthy coping mechanisms and giving them recovery resources for those who engage in self-injury. So the most common self-injury people think Mm. of is cutting. And also most people refer to it as self-harm. I'll refer to it as self-injury. I started engaging when I was 10 years old I my form of self-injury was cutting and i didn't learn it from anyone i really thought i made it up i thought i found a loophole to emotion so i really thought i was brilliant at the time because i thought wow i don't need to rely on other people to handle my emotions. I won't feel like a burden because that's a huge common denominator for people that engage in this behavior. Cutting was just my survival technique. Granted, it's a maladaptive coping mechanism, but it was a coping mechanism that kept me alive. I had a lot of suicidal ideation and I had three suicide attempts in my life. So it was very much living a double life And when it comes to self-injury, I never thought to get help because people always told me and the adults around me always told me, it's a phase, you're going to grow out of it. And so I thought, well, why get help for this if I'm naturally going to grow out of it and it's working for me right now? I was in therapy. I've been in therapy since I was 13. And I had a great support system when it comes to doctors. I was diagnosed bipolar 2 when I was 17, which was honestly a relief for me because it gave me some explanation to why all of this is occurring But I thought self-injury would go away, like everybody told me. What really moved me to get help was when I had just graduated college and I had a really bad cutting episode. And I thought to myself, wow, 13 years have already passed and I'm still engaging in this behavior. What are the next 13 years look like? I eventually would have family, what if, God forbid... My children walk in on me one day and they see me doing this to myself and they pick this up and they think this is a way to handle your emotions or show yourself love. And that thought scared me so much that the embarrassment of needing help no longer outweighed the fact that I needed help. I found a peer support group. It was the only one I could find and it just happened to be in New York. It was all different walks of life from engineers and scientists to PhD students to creatives. And I was just so shocked. And I was shocked how they were all saying things I had thought of, but I would never say out loud because I thought I would be called crazy. And after that first meeting, I called my family, I had them all in a conference call, and I told them where I was. And I remember it was Like February, it was snowing and I was freezing outside, but it didn't even feel cold to me because I was just so exhilarated from where I'd just come from and the hope I had just felt. And I told them where I'd gone and I just started crying. And that was the first time I felt this huge weight lifted off my shoulders. And that was when I realized how much cutting had weighed me down once it left. And I realized, wow. This doesn't have to be a part of my life for the rest of my life as I just assumed it would be. I assumed this was always, for lack of a better terms, a dark companion that would always be with me. And once I went to that meeting and realized, oh, I can recover from this. This doesn't have to be my forever. It just made me so feel so relieved and it felt like I could breathe for the first time. And I didn't realize that I'd been holding my breath for over a decade the key to recovery is connection. After a couple years, I became self-injury free. It took me a little bit of time and I just started asking to volunteer. And the straw that really broke the camel's back for me was a few months after that, my friend in Australia who worked in mental health at the time called me and said, Hey, the kids that we're working with are cutting and burning themselves. We're sending them to the hospital. We don't know what to do with them. And I thought that was just absurd and unacceptable as a society for no one to really know what they're doing, or at least the majority to not know what they're doing, and all the misconceptions that come with self-injury. So I told James, who founded the first iteration of the peer support group, hey, I really want to make this a nonprofit. I want to grow our organization. I want it global. I want resources. I want healthcare professionals to understand us instead of stigmatize us and judge us and see us as liability rather than people. I officially made us a nonprofit. I changed our name to Self Injury Recovery and Awareness. We now have three, sometimes four, with our youth group meetings a week. It's via wow. Zoom now, so we're global. We have a WhatsApp group with over 150 people in it and growing all the time. And now we are working on an online recovery and education course that hopefully we can you know, get out to the world and to schools, et cetera. We are also working with the school district of about 70,000 kids to create a self-injury protocol that will hopefully go to other schools once we pilot it. Yeah, we just have a lot of projects (laughs) in the works. And of course, growing more meetings because that's our biggest demand. People want more meetings. So we are just trying to grow our programs and staff so we can give people what they want and keep growing from there. So a lot of things in the mix, but that's where we are today. I'm No longer in fashion. I left the magazine I was working at a couple months ago to do this full, full time. I've always kind of gone back and forth. And I thought, okay, this is really the time to go full force. And now we are fundraising so we can have a full staff and create these programs and recovery courses and hopefully bring this to the world and bring more resources.
1: Amanda, you're amazing. I'm am getting full body chills when you're talking, and I remember getting full body chills the first time I heard your story at David's. And it's just truly incredible how you've been able to take something that you struggled with and felt so alone in and then make that a part of your journey to help other people on the, on the same path and make such an impact. It sounds like you share about these super vulnerable things so fluidly at this moment in time was it always easy for you to share in that way I know in the beginning you said like you didn't tell anyone and you said you when you went to your first group like you heard people say thoughts that you had never said heard out loud what was that transition like from you kind of overcoming that shame and embarrassment around this topic and being able to share more openly with people
0: So, to answer your first question, no, it was not always weird. (laughs) If you told me I would be talking about this for a living when I was a teenager or even in college, I would have said you were crazy and just laughed in your face. And also, I would have been probably mad at my future self. Like, how dare you out? How dare you out us and tell everybody our deepest, darkest secrets? But really, joining that peer support group helped me talk. It helped me understand how I was feeling and it also made me realize I had never said the words out loud I was like wow I've never uttered the word self-injury or self-harm or cutting out loud before and how much I saw it as my identity and And just in my opinion a lot of people see their self-injury as their identity which is why language is so important. You'll hear me say I engage in versus I am a cutter because you want to separate the behavior from who you are. I am not my behavior. I'm not cutting. You know, It is just something I engage in in order to regulate my emotions. And understanding that was really important in separating it, which made it easier to talk about because I didn't see myself wrapped up in it as one and the same. So that helped me a lot with telling and sharing my story, because I know I'm I'm so much more than that, you know, and it doesn't define me. Our trauma doesn't have to define us. Our darkness doesn't have to define us. Our pain doesn't have to define us. It contributes to us. And how we see the world, but it's, it's definitely not 100% of us. And it took me a while to understand that. And more importantly, believe it, we have to connect with each other. In order to do that, you have to be vulnerable. And that's where all of our power lies is in vulnerability. And once I figured that out, it made it a lot easier to mm-hmm. state my vulnerability and to be proud of it.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast was literally from that one line that you said it the original time I heard your story where it was like they had said things that I had thought but never heard said out loud and that is my whole like mission statement with recalibrate is to bring light to those things that everyone is thinking or people are struggling with that are stigmatized that are not talked about that people feel super isolated or alone in and they don't realize that actually so many people have these thoughts. And once they are able to be in spaces like your recovery group or other recovery groups or listening to podcasts where people are being extremely open and vulnerable and having that feeling of connection, that's where people can start to heal and feel less shameful, less embarrassed, like more motivated in, in their recovery. So I think that is the most important piece to it for sure
0: a hundred percent and it sounds odd to say but it's very comforting to know that or at least i have found it's very comforting to know that i'm not unique in this way uh, people would always come in our when well, we had in-person meetings back in the day and it was a, it was a kind of different group, people would come in and say, wow, I thought I made this up. And sometimes they would be a little sad that it wasn't just them in a way. They're like, wow, I really, you know, I thought the same way. I was like, wow, I thought I was like a genius for making up this like a loophole mm. to emotions. And I got James, who founded the first self-injury group in the first iteration, he would always say, he was like, the good thing is you're not unique in this way. There is a community. And I think that's always like an important thing to remember that we're not unique in those ways of our pain and our darkness and our trauma, which is good because it means we're not alone and it means that we can connect and that we have people to support us. And when I first heard that, I was like, that is an odd statement. And then I thought that is actually really comforting and it makes sense, you know, like we shouldn't be unique in that way because we need people, we need community, we need support, we need people to be our champions and our cheerleaders. And that's where the beauty lies. And I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have those champions and support network.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think it's interesting to how talking about it more and being more open about it helps you to heal and helps you to make progress on your own recovery journey. I struggled with an eating disorder and I remember when I first started recovery treatment, they were like, JC, if you're able to talk about it more with people or tell people that you're like even doing this program or that you've struggled with this, you'll go through recovery faster because it will be less shameful to you because this like shame thrives in secrecy and at the time I was like no like I'm not telling anybody I don't want anyone to know I had like my image that I had portrayed to the world and like I had a way that I was perceived and I was so concerned about like upholding this like you said like you would have a suicide attempt. And then the next day I'd be in your cheer uniform on the field and like no one would have any idea. And it made you feel so alone because you didn't open up about it to anyone and you weren't in the place to share that with people. And I remember being in the same exact place in my recovery journey where I was like, there's no way in hell that I'm ever going to tell anybody about this. Similarly to how you talk so openly, I found the same thing with now on the podcast I've talked about it multiple times I talk about it so openly with friends and with other people in my life and it's been the most healing thing for me to be like oh actually it's like not this big scary shameful monster like everyone has things that they struggle with even if it's not across the same category of things but like everyone is dealing with their little unknown monsters behind the scenes that if we're open about them it helps build that connection that you talk about hundred percent.
0: And it's funny how once we befriend the darkness and befriend our monsters, they no longer hold power. And then we gain it back. And it's not even about bypassing it. You know what I mean? I think we're all darkness and light and it's just not being scared of that darkness. It's about understanding it and leading through curiosity. Because I always thought, oh, I, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And now I tell people, well, if you're self-injuring, just get to know it. What what are the reasons why? People always have a lot of self-hatred It's a common denominator. And I remember in one of our literature groups, one of our layers says to write an apology letter to yourself. And she was like, I can't write an apology letter to myself. I, I don't like myself. And I said, OK, no problem. Just write all the things you hate about yourself. And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, just write all the things you hate about yourself. And I was like, it's quite jarring when you see it on paper. And she wrote it. And she wrote it so quickly before we were even done with the meeting. She's like, oh, I finished. And I was like, wow. And I was like, okay, so what do you think? And she was like, This is bad. I wouldn't even think this or say this about a fly. And I was like, So you're saying you're less than a fly? And she was like, Yeah, this is definitely something to think about. <laughs> this is something to work on. I was like, Yeah, don't be afraid of your hatred or your darkness. Lead with curiosity and see why it's there. It's not gonna you're not gonna love yourself overnight. It is a journey and it will be the journey to the end, probably. But don't be in a rush to get there. Just give yourself time, give yourself some grace and compassion and see what's up in the darkness. It's okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love that approach. And we did a lot of the same things when I was doing my recovery program, where it was a lot of exploring where these two parts of yourself come from. And we referred to them as healthy self and eating disorder self. And we would write letters back and forth to each other. And like, you would literally sit there and have a dialogue with yourself of this is my eating disorder monster self. And this is my healthy self. And they would go back and forth with each other to build more awareness of what you said, like that self-hatred, the unworthiness, being so unlovable and all of these things that are th- making your recovery process so difficult. And one thing that really helped me was we did this needs exploration. And similar to what you said of you cut to survive and it was serving this purpose for you. And you describe it as like a loophole to emotions. And obviously you continue to engage in it a like habitually but b because it's serving a purpose so it's really hard to Mm -hmm. stop doing that if you don't have a coping mechanism to deal with that because it's obviously like both things are, are a maladaptive coping mechanism so when you're able to gain more awareness about okay i'm doing this because like i have these five needs that are being unmet or like i feel these things that i think cutting is helping with or I think that this eating disorder is helping with but actually it's not helping it's like a band-aid on the solution so like if I okay. can actually meet those needs in a way that is healthy then maybe I can like pull back on this behavior right
0: exactly and once you know there are other ways and there are healthier ways right I don't think I knew or even thought of healthier ways I, I just Same. thought well this is working so why would I why would I stop you know it's keeping me alive and I don't have to Quote unquote, bother anyone about everything I'm feeling. And again, it goes back to needs. I didn't know my needs as a child. I didn't, mm. even now, sometimes I don't know my needs. I talk about it all the time with my <laughs> therapists and mentors and fundraising coach. Actually, I just did a needs exercise a few months ago. I told my fundraising coach, I was like, wow, if I knew this back then, the things that would have been different, but you know, everything happens for a reason, but yeah, knowing your needs and standing up for your needs. That's something I struggle with still standing up for my needs and stating it and not being scared of rejection. If I say my needs and just Mm. standing, standing in them and advocating for myself and advocating for my needs is something I struggle with still. And you know, so we're, I'm a work in progress. We all are. And that's definitely something I work on a lot today. And I think that comes a lot with the self-injury mindset as well. I haven't self-injured in many years. I don't count. That's a whole other story and thought process, but I'm just not someone that counts. I always saw it. I'm like, as a trophy, I feel like the competitive, like athlete in me mm-hmm. came out when I started my recovery. And I realized I just wanted external applause rather than figuring out my self-love and compassion. I was focusing on the outward versus inward so when I relapsed I was just so devastated and then somebody told me stop counting and I asked I was like oh I can do that I'm like it's your (laughs) recovery do whatever you want I was like oh okay so I stopped counting and then the years just flew by I give people ranges now when they ask I'm like between like seven and eight ish maybe six and eight Mm -hmm. like I really don't know because I don't care it's you know I'm proud of my time sure and but I'm more proud of how I think about myself, how I talk to myself, how I love mm. myself. And again, it's not like I love myself and I'm talking amazing to myself like every day. <laughs> but but I know when to you know reframe. I know when to catch myself. And so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my mindset more than my time. I think time can look a lot like trophy for some people, especially for me, it did. And I had to focus on my mindset. A lot of people that stop think, Engaging the behavior, like well, I stopped engaging. How am I still thinking that way? I was like, you can stop engaging in the physical behavior, but you can still have the psyche of a self-injury. Oh, hundred
1: percent,
0: yeah. So that's why I'm always like, if you don't want to counter, if it doesn't help you, just stop. You know, focus on your mind, focus on your heart. The time will inevitably come if you start there. Right.
1: Yeah. Even I like that you called that out. Like even if you get past the original acting on the behavior, the impact on your thoughts and your the amount of headspace that it takes up still lingers for like mm-hmm. potentially years after that. Yeah. And we both, I'm sure, still have these negative thought patterns that come yeah. up. And it's not that they never come up. It's that our resilience to them is so much greater than before. And we actually know healthy coping mechanisms to deal with them at this point. And you're able to have the capacity to handle them in a different way than before. I love what you said about you had this moment of wow, it's been thirteen years, and I'm I'm still dealing with this. That changed your perspective from being like, okay, this is way more than me being embarrassed about this. Like, I need to to go to the next step. What were, were at that point where you just like fed up and you're like, all right, I'm doing it. Like, I'm going to Google and I'm I'm searching for something. Or was there like a back and forth between you deciding that you wanted to take that next step and and get help?
0: I think I was fed up, and I was also. In a way, I was embarrassed that I was engaging the behavior as an adult versus, I'm not sure how to articulate this, but I was embarrassed before just to engage in the behavior. And then I moved to, I was embarrassed because of my age and the behavior, because I thought it was just a teenage phase, which is not most, a lot of the people, if not most of the people in Sierra are adults. I think that's why I got fed up because I thought, how am I handling for the most part, like everything else and how... Am I handling my bipolar disorder, but I can't handle cutting. Mm. I can't figure this out, but I can figure out my chemical imbalance. Like why, and why can I figure that one out? And I can't figure this one out. And also why can nobody help me with this? Why does yeah. nobody understand this? Why does everybody stigmatize it? Why is everybody scared of it? Why does everyone see it as a liability? I shouldn't say everyone, but at least everyone in my world at the time. Right. And Yeah, I was just trying. I was like, well, if no one's going to help me, I'm going to help myself. And that's also where Sierra came from. I thought, well, nobody's going to help us. I'll help us. And I just said, screw it. I'll do it.
1: Yeah, it definitely is frustrating because over, I mean, in the past seven or eight years, even going to therapy has become way less stigmatized. Everyone is talking about it. And like anxiety and depression have become way less stigmatized. I remember in my freshman year of college, going to therapy was like the most restricted taboo topic of all time. I would be so shameful of going to therapy. I didn't know anyone going to therapy. I would feel so anxious about like how I was gonna get there and if anyone was gonna see me, everything about it, I was terrified of. And now like I have therapy on my work calendar. I'm like, oh guys, BRP gotta go. Like I'll be back oh. in an hour. Everyone and their mother is going to therapy and talking about therapy so openly. So just to even see that change in pretty short amount of time is gives me a lot of hope for the future, but But still, things like self-harm and things like eating disorders and these other things that aren't anxiety or depression are stigmatized and people are not Mm -hmm. talking about them enough.
0: Yeah, for sure. And yes, therapy has definitely changed. Now, I feel like it's the opposite. If you meet someone that's not in therapy, you're like, whoa. Like,
1: Like, that's a red flag. I'm not dating anyone that doesn't go to therapy. I'm like, that (laughs) is a requirement. Yeah, exactly
0: like you've never been to therapy there's a lot wrong that's a lot to unpack you guys got a lot of years to go
1: it's completely Um, shifted yeah
0: yeah 100 percent. yeah it's it's strange how society can shift so quickly and our minds can shift so quickly and now we judge people who don't go to therapy but yeah of course there's definitely there's a lot of stigma with self-injury granted I think it's a, a bit better than when it was when I was growing up or maybe it's just because the when I'm talking to people it's they know what they're walking into, they know they're going to be talking about self injury. So right. they eventually prepared themselves. And I honestly, I, luckily, the mental health talks, you know, the needle has been pushed forward, we still have a really long way to go. But at least there are more conversations happening and that's how things lose their stigmas by simply having conversations like we're having right now i have had conversations at bars about self-injury oh. and men <laughs> start crying to me about their self-injury and i thought well mm. maybe i should stop bringing these up in like parties and like social settings because then <laughs> people will like confess and i'm like oh gosh sorry i didn't like mean to make you cry i was just it's my passion and i It's a funny thing that I love talking about self-injury. absolutely Mm. love talking about self-injury recovery. And I am still shocked to this day when I talk to people about it. And there are very, very few instances where people can't relate to it. Most people say, oh, I did that. Or, oh, I know somebody that did that. Or when they understand what the technical term is non-suicidal self-injury. So NSSI, when they understand what is under the NSSI umbrella, they'll say, oh, I didn't know this behavior I was engaging in constitutes as self-injury. I've had someone at a meeting come and they came to support a friend. And by the end, they shared and they said, listening to all of you guys, I realized I engage in this behavior. I just didn't know. I only cutting was self-injury. So that mm-hmm. happens a lot as well. But yes, I've had an attorney that was looking over my paperwork when I first started the nonprofit, and I just had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, "How do I register with the Secretary of State? How do I do this with the IRS? What's the EIN?" Like, I just had no idea what I was doing. And he was looking over it and I was explaining self injury, and he literally started crying. And he said, "I've wow. been doing this since I was five years wow. old." Wow. And he's he was he sixty something at the time. Oh my god. So, yeah, I think once we start talking, it's unbelievable, but also now very believable to me how easy people open up It's just about creating that safe space. And I think talking about it with ease and talking about it in a, in a casual sense, even though the behavior and the subject isn't casual, doesn't mean the conversation has to be heavy and super Mm -hmm. dark. You know, you can talk about it in a conversational way, in a light way, like we're doing right now. It's just about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yes, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but the more you have it, the more you get comfortable with it. And so, like I said, the less the stigma goes away. And I think so many people have fear around self-injury, especially since they see it as suicide when it's not suicide, which is why the technical term is non-suicidal self-injury. But once we have these conversations and we take that fear out and we actually understand what it is, that's where the compassion and the understanding and the love comes into play. And that's when we start seeing this or seeing these people as people. Again, Uh, when I give workshops to doctors and nurses, I always like to say I teach compassion through science because once they understand how self-injury affects the brain and that it's producing endorphins, and that's where that relief comes from, and then that's where the urges come about because you're craving those endorphins. Once they understand that and understand all the technicalities that come with it, then they start seeing their patients as people again. They start calling them by their name instead of calling them the cutter. Like We have to start from there, like teaching them some of them call them by their name do not refer to them when you're talking to your peers as the cutter or the burner they have names yeah. so that's why I like to say I teach compassion through science
1: mm. yeah i really appreciate you like bringing light to this and talking about this and i wish i had something like this like i was introduced to this at a very young age my best friend in high school struggled with self-harm and i was like pretty much the only person that knew about it at the time and i had no resources to help her. And like, like you said, like you went to Google and you like typed it in and you were like, why is there literally only one thing? And it's Mm -hmm. like happens to be in New York. I remember feeling just like so overwhelmed at the time because I didn't know how to help her. And like, there was literally, that was way pre before like people even talked about therapy or anxiety or depression. And like, we were so young that I just didn't know how to best support her and what resources like could be helpful for her and now she's doing amazing which is incredible okay. after yeah. going through different recovery treatments and stuff like that but it was just like, such a difficult time because no one was talking about it and if we had the resources that you provide now and the ability to go to a support group and not feel so alone in it and have someone with firsthand experience leading the group instead of like a doctor or therapist who has no idea what your lived experience that would have absolutely changed the game yeah
0: for sure it would have changed the game for me when I see kids come in to our group like wow y'all are so they think they're doing horribly in life and I'm like I wish you guys knew how impressive you guys are you guys are between 14 to 18 years old and you're talking about coping skills you're talking about Yourself self-injury and trying to understand the why and the root of the behavior i was not doing that when i was a teenager <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nor no would way. i have wanted to i would have wanted to keep it a secret it was in a way of like my armor i kind of wore it as a badge in a way of look how much pain i'm in mm-hmm. and not in an attention way it was more of a way to prove to myself i had nothing to do with other people it invalidated my emotions to myself like wow i i Look how this emotion manifested into the physical. I knew I was feeling a lot, so mm-hmm. it wasn't really about other people um, believing me or thinking it. Because I mean, I I went to great lengths to hide it, but it was about me believing it and me seeing that I was in a lot of pain to validate myself. And eventually, I didn't actually go. I didn't try to hide it once I hit high school, uh, just because I relied on the stigma. I I abused the stigma. I knew people would feel so uncomfortable talking about it with me that I knew even if I showed it, nobody
1: would talk to me about it.
0: So I used Mm -hmm. it to my advantage, even though it wasn't to my advantage, but at the time I thought it was to my advantage because everyone felt uncomfortable about it. And it is an uncomfortable thing to talk about if you don't understand what's going on. And it's totally understandable to be scared about it, especially as teens and seeing your friends go through it. You don't know what to do. You don't even know what this means or why they're doing it. They might not even know why they're doing it, Uh, which is why being in a group of people that understand and seeing people or maybe like older than you that have gone through it and hearing them talk or going through our literature later discovery which are just guiding journal prompts to understand the why and get to the root of the behavior helps you understand what's going on with you and you know when you're a teen there's so much going on you're just really trying to survive and make it <laughs> make it through school to make sure you have a friend or two.
1: Oh my gosh right
0: Yeah, 100%. So, you know, it's it's the journey for everybody. But I would say when it comes to if you know somebody that engages in this behavior, it's not about having the answers. It's not about even knowing what it is, or anything like that. It's about listening and just being there. Just let them know, hey, if you want to talk, I'm here. It can be really that simple. And I think, you know, it starts in with simplicity, it starts with just Asking questions with respectful curiosity. It's a term Cornell Self-Injury Research Center coined, I believe, Dr. Janice, who's a big supporter of Sierra, and I appreciate her so much. And she's helped a lot along the way and will continue to help with our projects and whatnot. But they talk about respectful, and she talks about respectful curiosity. Asking those questions, and not in an invasive way, but so you know how to help them. So asking, hey, can I support you in some way? Do you want to call me? Especially if you have the emotional space to be that support if you don't then don't offer it because at the end of the day like we all have to have (laughs) our own boundaries but if you do feel comfortable with them calling you then offer that if that's where you're comfortable ask them if they just want to talk ask them hey can you tell me your story if you're open to telling me it's really just those respectful curiosity questions and just knowing that you're on their side and not judging them as long as you go in it with compassion and at least try not to show your fear, even if you're fe- fearful. And it's completely understandable But trying just to, you know, regulate that portion as well, and just leading with compassion and love and support, I don't think you can go wrong, because no one expects you to have the answers. And the person themselves probably doesn't have the answers either. But as long as they know they have somebody in their corner, I think that's the most, most important, important
1: thing. Yeah. I love that you shared those tips. I feel like it's so helpful. And I wish that I had that when I was helping like my friend through it at the time. Like I remember it's literally a core memory for me sitting and I would just sit with her and hold space for her. And so it's like the only thing I knew how to do at the time and hear her out and make sure that she felt loved. And I remember we would get ready to go to a party or something. And she had like like all over her arms and legs. And like, I would sit there and we would do our makeup as if we were just getting ready. And she asked me to help cover them, basically, because she felt more comfortable. It's a heavy subject, but being able to talk about it openly and like comfortably creates the space for someone. And I would just normally sit there and help her cover it and make sure that she felt comfortable in that time and I yeah I just remember like feeling so much of her pain but not knowing how to help and it's helpful to hear from you just having that space for someone and and approaching it with compassion and curiosity is sometimes like one of the ways that you can support someone going through it and you don't have to have all the answers
0: yeah for sure and wow you were a great friend to be and also Mm -hmm. to be able to hold that space and take on that heavy is so Kudos to you for being such an amazing friend. And just, you mm. know, we were all just trying, even as adults, we're all just trying to do the best we can. And as long, I think as long as you lead with love and compassion, it, at least you're putting the right step forward. You're putting the right emotions <laughs> forward. Yeah. But yeah, it's really just about, like I said, leading with compassion. I think I'm going to sound like a broken record, but that's <laughs> just the most important thing because we're so worried we're going to be judged and people are going to be scared of us that. And we don't have compassion for ourselves, which is also something you have to work on in your recovery process. I always say, so people that engage in the behavior, I've always found they are so incredibly empathetic. They just can't give that empathy to themselves. And so it's learning how to, okay, how do I give it to everybody else? How do I give it to me? Yeah.
1: I hear you talk a lot about identity and like separating cutting as your identity and I think that's so important I talk about that and think about this a lot instead of being like I am depressed I am anxious I am a cutter or whatever like i feel anxious today okay. like i'm not overly identifying with these emotions and i think that's super important to start to to separate those behaviors from who you are and and develop your sense of self outside of the things that you're feel, like engaging in instead of claiming that's who you are as a person i'm interested what that process of of separation looked like for you and how you were able to develop, Amanda, my sense of self versus the behaviors that you were engaging in?
0: Honestly, it was a grieving process because mm. I didn't want to get, I was, I was so wrapped up in that for so many years. If someone had asked me when I was a kid, what's the number one thing I need to know about you? I obviously, I wouldn't have been honest, but in my head, I would have thought I'm a cutter. That's, that's the biggest thing you need to know about me. That's the biggest thing in my life that's the most intimate relationship I have in my life is cutting. Mm -hmm. It's always been there for me and it never lets me down. It's reliable. And that goes into my needs because one of my needs is reliability. And that's where I found self-injury fulfilled that need because it was always reliable. So I didn't realize that I had to break up with the behavior and I had to grieve it and it was okay to grieve it. I think a lot of the times we're so focused on especially when you're talking to doctors that you have to stop right away, that it's bad. It's, you know, yes, it's a maladaptive coping mechanism, but like you said, it has benefits. You don't keep doing something if it doesn't work. So really thanking it, that's the biggest thing that helped me. I wrote a letter thanking my self-injury because it did keep me alive. So once I was able to thank my self-injury for what it did for me, although it is a maladaptive coping mechanism and is, you know not the best way and you shouldn't hurt yourself. And, you know, now I have respect for my body and I would never do that now. Knock on wood though. But yeah, I think it was not shunning it that helped me separate the identity. I thought I always had to shun it. And I was so focused on that. It was bad. Once I let go of that and let go of the stigma and said, Hey, like you've helped me a lot. And it also made me realize my first Relationship wasn't with, super, wasn't with a person, it was with self injury. Because I started when I was mm. 10, my first intimate moment going into that dark mode, it, it really began with self injury for me. And so, realizing that relationship, kind of giving respect to the relationship, saying thank you, but goodbye, I, I don't want you anymore, was really important to me and for me and for my recovery. But I had to give it the acknowledgement that in my opinion, it deserved for me in my process, everyone's recovery is different. But for my recovery, that was needed, the acknowledgement of that. And it also took away the shame as well. And I think it's really hard for people to give that up. But once you do, it it feels amazing.
1: Hearing you speak, it's amazing to me starting to understand the overlap in recovery processes across a variety of different things so much of what you're talking about I've experienced with my own recovery even though we experienced completely different scenarios the way that we've healed from them is really similar and I did the same thing like thanking myself and writing letters to myself and doing all these processes in recovery to to have that moment to grieve this past version of yourself and thank it for for how it served you and then feeling safe to let it go. And I think for a long time that that process is super hard because you spend time like once you come to terms with it, then you, you spend time being like angry about it. I know for me, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I wasted so much time on this. Like, I can't believe that this has taken this seat in my life for so long. Similar to how you said, like, I can't believe it's been 13 years. Like that's a piece. And then you have to go through the grieving piece and the acknowledgement piece and like creating this bigger picture of how it makes up your, your sense of self in a way where you can integrate it. That feels healthy to you. And I think getting to actual healing is making meaning out of your story or your pain and and then helping people to do the same like you're doing with sira and like how i hope to do on the podcast is bring these topics and conversations to life of things that i've struggled with like the only way i i know about them is from my lived experience and and same for you you couldn't have started sira without that and then from there it becomes easier to talk about it becomes less shameful you help inspire change in other people, you help impact people in that way. And then because you felt so alone, you become, you go on this journey to, to make sure that no one else ever feels like that.
0: Exactly. And, you know, there's such a high correlation between, you know, people that suffer from eating disorders and people that engage in the behavior. I myself suffered from bulimia for many years and my bulimia actually ramped up once I got help for self-injury. And then mm. we always say like, look out for a secondary, you know, behaviors once you you know understand and you start working on your self-injury recovery so i had dealt with bulimia while i self-endured since like junior high for my bulimia started in junior high but you know it really it, the worst it ever got was when i was recovering from self-injury in my early mm. 20s and then that was a whole other process too but i realized it was all it was so connected it it's was so all connected. about self you know what i mean it's all about the self <laughs> know thyself mm. you know Know thyself. Um, <laughs> know thyself. <laughs> So it was all connected It it's just, you know, manifesting in different
1: forms. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for helping bring more awareness to this area that's so often not talked about. I think it's so important to talk about and I've loved having this conversation with you. You do so much work in this space. I will link everything Sierra related below, but what are some things that you wish people knew or where do you want to direct people if they're struggling or if their loved one is struggling that you want to leave off on? I
0: wish people knew how common self-injury is and that you're able to recover from it that it's not for attention and Mm -hmm. it's just really people going to extreme lengths to regulate their emotions we're all just doing the best we can life's hard so you know let's help each other out i would if you are looking for a resource for yourself or a loved one go to the sierra.org so the s-i-r-a.org and the biggest thing you could help us with i was speaking to my mentor earlier today and he was like, "You need to start saying this. You need to get comfortable asking." <laughs> and I'm like, "I don't feel comfortable asking." Speak um, your needs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had a whole conversation about this today. So he's holding me accountable because I told him that I would mention it. We are fundraising. Yeah, so you asking are. for money is the hardest thing for me. I battled with it. I was like, "It feels so unethical because I'm trying to like create impact and help people, but I need money." But you know, you can't make change and impact without money. So. We are fundraising, <laughs> and uh, we're fundraising for right now, just you know, like this month and so on, like a thousand dollars, which would help us have more meetings, so we can pay our hosts that all have lived experience and give them stipends for their time. And then, with that thousand dollars, thousand dollars, we can hopefully have more meetings as well. So it's really focusing on growing our meetings, and making sure our hosts are available and ready onboarded and they're getting compensated for their time and holding and can hold space for all of us so even if you can donate five dollars fifty dollars whatever you feel comfortable with if you care about this cause at all and want to support us you can go to our website thesierra.org and click the support tab or you can text Four, four, you can text Sierra, so S I R A to the number four three two one. Amazing, and it's I'm all tax deductible.
1: Heck yeah! <laughs> I'm proud of you for speaking your <laughs> need, and you. I will Thank definitely you. link everything down below so people can check it out. You are doing such such amazing work. I'm so inspired by you, and I'm so grateful for you for coming on the podcast today. Truly you are incredible, Amanda. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It's been such an honor. I love what you're doing. I love this podcast and thank you for holding space and letting me talk about self injury.
1: Oh my gosh. It's been an absolute honor.